Built Unstoppable is a weekly podcast that features a new guest each week who shares their experiences, learnings, and helpful tips for achieving your greatest potential. Welcome to episode number nine of the Built Unstoppable podcast. I'm your host, Justin Levy, and today I'm joined by Laura Gassner-Odding, who is the founder of Limitless Possibility and the author of Limitless, which became a Washington Post bestseller debut at number two, right behind this woman uh, that you may recognize, Michelle Obama, with her book, Becoming, uh, which deserves a huge congrats uh, to you. Um, So welcome to the show. Hey, Justin, it is great to be here. So in your book, you talk about this uh, topic around consonants, and you have these, these C's behind it, these four C's. And could you expand on that and, and why consonants is so important in people's lives? Yeah, so I spent 20 years doing executive search, and In that job, as a recruiter, I was paid by my clients to call thousands of leaders, people, bold-faced names that you'd recognize and get them to consider taking a new job that they'd never even thought about, that they didn't know existed, in an organization they might not even have ever thought about working, and from a search firm that they'd never heard of before. So I was paid to call thousands of leaders uh, because they were super successful at what they were doing in their current job. And those thousands of leaders all took my calls because despite the fact that they were super successful, they weren't very happy. And I was fascinated by the fact that success on paper doesn't actually equal happiness in real life. And so I started to think about the handful of people that I interviewed, the handful of leaders that I interviewed who seemed to have both success and happiness. And I started to think about my own career and the decisions and the choices and the moves that I'd made at those major moments of transition. And what I realized was that we all had one thing in common, and that was consonants. Consonants being this this uh, gravitational uh, momentum, this 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 uh, frictionless belonging, this idea that the what you do matches the who you are. And what I realized was that it was made up of these four C's of calling, connection, contribution, and control. Calling being that thing that gets you out of bed, the cause you want to serve, the leader that you that 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 inspires you, the business that you want to build, the family you want to nurture connection. Does your work actually matter? Does the work you do on a daily basis, your email, your contacts, your, or, or sorry, your email, your, your, your calendar, your um, telephone list, your to-do list, do they match the calling you want to serve? Contribution. Does the work actually bring something to your life that allows you to have the lifestyle that you desire, the career trajectory that you need, or uh, manifesting your values on a daily basis? And then lastly is control. Do you have personal agency over how much your work actually connects to your calling and how much it contributes to the life that you want? And what I found is that time and time again, when people made decisions that aligned with their personal rubric of this consonant, they were able to have both success and happiness. Now, you briefly touched on it, but why do you see so many people focused on purpose right now? Well, I think that there has been since really the 2016 election, and I think it was brewing for a while before this, but I think the 2016 election was really the sort of cataclysmic moment for a lot of Americans where we were forced to 
think about what we actually stand for, what we're actually doing with our lives. What are the, what, you know, what, what is meaningful to us? And I'm not going to get political, you know, depending on whatever side of the aisle your listeners may be on, they may define that purpose differently. But it was this moment where suddenly we really had to think about it. And it became part of the conversation that we were having. Companies were, were advertising in the Super Bowl in 2017, as you'll remember, suddenly it was no longer, you know, Paris Hilton on her with her, with her sloppy burger on the, on the hood of a car, but companies were falling all over themselves to show that they cared about the environment or children or women or people of color, et cetera. So I think that was happening. At the same time, we have millennials who, you know, get a really bad rap, but they are going to be 75% of the workforce by 2025. And they are pushing this conversation about purpose like we've never had before because they don't have the work on one side and home on the other. They've always had lives that were intersected, uh, that intersected the uh, both of them because there's been social media. They've always lived out loud. And so we're having these conversations and that was even pre-COVID. So now we're in this place where people are like, oh God, you know, when life goes back to normal, quote unquote, is the normal I'm going back to really the life that I want? And I think that's created more conversation around purpose than ever before. Now, when does life does go back to whatever that new normal will be and, and looks like, obviously, what advice do you have for listeners looking to achieve their goals or you know take this into account um, that they've set out for themselves? Well, I think that... I think that we have to stop listening to everyone else's definition of what success needs to be. I think that's where we get it all wrong in the first place. So Justin, you remember when you were in elementary school, some teacher was probably like, you know, you'd be really good at this. And then you were like, oh, okay, I guess I won't be a fireman or an astronaut. I'm going to do that thing. I had a teacher who said, you're really argumentative. You should become a lawyer. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, first I told her she was wrong, of course, because, you know, <laughs> I was argumentative. <laughs> but then I was like, yeah, okay. And I, I created a path that got me to law school where I started the very first day and I looked around and I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a lawyer. This doesn't make sense for me. But I thought that that was the definition of success. And then, you know, I started dating, you know, a, a guy who was terrible for me um, because I wanted to do anything but that. <laughs> And he introduced me to this random, you know, governor from a small southern state that was um, that that was running for president. And I was like, Governor who? Bill Clinton from where? Arkansas? Not a chance. That's not going to happen. But I still joined the campaign and I dropped out of law school and everyone freaked out. And then it all turned out all right. So I think we have these moments where whether it's like organ rejection and we can't continue to do the thing we've been doing for everyone else. So we stop and we do something for ourselves. We do the thing that actually matters to us or, or maybe, you know, eventually something like COVID comes along and we just have to figure it out again. But there are these moments where we have to just say, what does success actually mean to me? Doesn't mean the big fancy house. Doesn't mean the big fancy car. Doesn't mean the fancy title and the, you know, and the, and the fancy company, or maybe it means moving out to like an 1800s farmhouse and making my own energy and growing all my own food. I don't know. We're all going to have very different definitions, but my advice to people who are trying to figure out what to do now is to start with this question of who are you giving votes to in your life? And are those actually the people who should have voices in your life? Who actually matters? Who's defining success for you? Is it coming from you 
or is it coming from someone else? Because if it's coming from someone else, you can't be insatiably hungry for someone else's goal. So no matter how hard you work for it, you're not going to be that successful. And even if you are, you're not going to be that happy. So it's got to be an inside job. It's got to start from you and your own definition first and foremost. Now, I will say that dropping out of school and going to work for Bill Clinton turned out okay for you. You became a political appointee, helped to found uh, AmeriCorps, which has gone on to be wildly successful for uh, a lot of Americans. So uh, thank you for that by all means. But it, it shows that you went to go do something uh, political or not, but you went to go do something that mattered to you instead of that path that you were told to stay on. Now, for people that want to do meaningful work that are drawn to it, I think it aligns, you know, in our conversations and what you've written about that it means that they need to go into the nonprofit sector. Do you agree with that? So I actually don't agree with that. And I talk about this in, in Limitless. And I feel like given the fact that I dropped out of law school to join a presidential campaign, worked in the White House, left that to join one of the, the top recruiting firms that did specifically nonprofit work and then started my own firm and ran that for 15 years and worked with some of the largest nonprofits, foundations, universities, uh, advocacy groups in the world. I am an unimpeachable source on this statement. You can do important work that makes the world a better place without sacrificing your own wallet. And not only that, not only are there jobs in the nonprofit sector that actually pay a good wage, not only is it a place that you can go that actually makes sense, but there are corporations that are socially responsible, that are, you know, that, that, are, that are doing work in ways that are good for the environment, that are paying a fair, uh, you know, that, that have fair labor practices, that are promoting women and uh, black people and people of color. Um, but there's also something to be said for if your highest and best use is making a ton of money in the for-profit sector, as long as you're not like actively abusing people in those roles, you're not, you know, tying kids to looms in Bangladesh, as long as you are not, you know, doing something that's horrible and you take some of that money and you donate it to nonprofit organizations or causes you believe in, you might actually be doing better by those causes. So if you're working, if you, what you care about is curing cancer and you could work in an organization and advocate for funding research to cure cancer and you're making, I don't know, 50 grand a year and you're sacrificing and you're, you're having a hard time you know, putting uh, rent on the table and also uh, you know, raising children and all of those things, if you are capable of making $100,000 somewhere else in the private sector and donating 25 grand or 10 grand into the nonprofit sector, you actually might do better by that organization by becoming what's called a philanthropist, right? <laughs> For which you get all kinds of praise than being the person who's struggling in that nonprofit. So I think that there are tons of ways to serve. And I think the problem is that we get this idea of calling wrong because we think that the only way to have purpose is to wear the white hat is to take the, the shirt off of our back and give it to a poor kid in need. When the truth is there are tons of ways to have purpose. And, and not only that, your purpose might not even have anything to do with curing cancer. You might just care about buying a Maserati in a beach house. That may be your purpose. And that's fine. I'm not going to judge you for it. But we get into trouble because we think that purpose only has one definition. And we're worried about all those friends with their little wagging fingers going... 
I don't know. It seems like your work isn't, you don't not have a lot of purpose. Your purpose is only your purpose. And so let's all stop purpose shaming each other. Let's figure out what our highest and best use is. Let's figure out what it is we care about, what the problems we want to solve in the world, and then what the solution is that that problem needs, and then what the work is that we can do to help get there together. And whether it's, you know, getting your family, getting out of debt so that your family can actually make decisions that you were not able, you didn't have available to you, or maybe it's curing cancer, or maybe it's buying a Maserati in a beach house. That's just your purpose, and nobody else gets to decide. Absolutely, and I think that... You know, even for those people that do want to donate, that want to give back monetarily, we have so many options these days where you don't have to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars and writing in that $25,000 check or, or more. You know, I always equate it to my wife and I give uh, to Feed in America because of my background and, and how I grew up. And $5 serves 50 million, or uh, sorry, $50, uh, 50 meals. So that coffee that you might go to buy at Starbucks today can serve 50 meals to uh, people that are in need of food. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I didn't want to out your story, but I'm glad that you brought that up because, so for example, somebody might look at you and say, well, if he cares that much about feeding the poor, you know, he grew up hungry. If he cares that much about this, why doesn't he go work for Feeding America? Why doesn't he go work for a nonprofit that does that? But I would argue that doing the work that you do for a for-profit puts more money in your pocket so that you're actually able to give in those ways and doing the work that you do actually allows you to build a much bigger brand and a much bigger platform so that you know more people so that every year at Christmas time, when you put up those links to this is what Laura and I do, here is my story, this is why it's important to me, would you please give? You're actually able to leverage more money to that organization because of the work that you do and where you do it. So if your calling is that you don't ever want anybody to go hungry, nobody should go to bed hungry again in this, in this wealthy nation of ours, then doing the work that you do outside of that actually helps serve that cause much better. I also think that one of the things that many of us get wrong uh, is that people wear it as a badge of honor and talk about it too much, right? It's part of their ego so they feel that if they don't put it on social media, if they don't have it as part of their bio or something, that doesn't mean that they can't impact it, right? And you and I have several mutual friends that have never spoken of the good that they do for the communities mm-hmm. or for their friends and do not need to do that. There's no need for them to do that in interviews and blog posts on social, you know, and, and with what I've gone through, um, you know, with my surgeries and, and everything, some of those friends have reached out privately and I've never kind of outed them. They just reached out, helped us, you know, and I tend to respect those people even more than the people that publicly talk about it. Sure. If you're doing one of these contribution campaigns, 
so that you see me asking others to help contribute to maximize, you know, double, triple the amount that you can make. I, I'm all for that. And I think that's wonderful. Um, but I, I appreciate the people that, that do it because it's part of who they are and that don't promote that all the time, every day. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm actually pretty cool with people doing whatever it is they're going to do. As long as they do good, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty cool with it because I, I, I believe that everybody on this planet is fighting a battle we know nothing about. You know, I mean, if somebody's showing off about the fact that they gave 14 cents to the United Way, they, there's clearly some other struggle that they're dealing with. And, 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 and I'm all right with that. What I'm, what I'm not okay with is when people talk about the good work they're doing and other people feel like they need to shame them. You know, like it's not enough. It can never be enough. You know, like I gave 14 cents to the United Way. Well, why didn't you give 15 cents? You know, 15 cents would have made much more difference. It's more, it's, I get more upset about the people who sit on the sidelines and who are, you know, keyboard warriors and judges and scorekeepers while they're actually not themselves doing jack. Like those are the ones who make me crazy. <laughs> sure. And I, I love that term going back to your, what you were talking about a, a couple minutes ago around purpose shaman that is a uh, i've never lit, heard it put that way before so i'm stealing that i'll give you credit but well, you know, there, there's just a lot of martyrdom around doing good sure. you know it's like uh, especially in the nonprofit sector especially in politics you know two worlds that i've come out of there's the like oh well you didn't sleep under your desk last night clearly you're not working that hard sure. you know and, and and i just you know i I think that that has to stop because it it's just really I think it's I think it's unfair and I think that it's um it's short-sighted and and I do think I do think that we should all allow other people to find their own version of success because when we do that then people actually are happier and you find that happier people are actually more giving <laughs> to nonprofits and, and, and to causes and, and, and to political campaigns. So, you know, that's my goal is to just like uh, figure out a way so that, you know, that hurt people hurt people. Right. Yeah. So if we can find a way for more people to find success that is consonant with who they are, that that feels right for who they are so they can feel fulfilled in this one big juicy life that you get on this planet. We none of us know how long it's going to last. So if you can help people to be in a place where they're actually feeling really good about themselves, they suddenly become much more generous with their money, with their emotions, with their spirit, with their platforms. And I think that benefits us all. Now, Ensure that I link this in this in the show notes because I have a feeling this could go down this path. But if you had to provide someone with a practical tip that they could use in their career, um, what would that be? Are we talking about somebody earlier in their career? Uh, yeah. So I would say the closer you can get to the action, the better you'll be, even if you're just bring in the coffee. So I think we often get told to go for the biggest title we can get. Um, you know, like if you're the, if you're, if you're the, the assistant manager of the fourth division on the 12th rank, you know, somewhere in, you know, the Western region, you're still an assistant manager and that's awesome. Well, what I would say is you should just go be the executive assistant or the like, you know, coffee getter in the CEO's office 
And holy cow, are you going to learn some things? You're going to have great connections. You're going to see how decisions get made. You're going to see what actually happens behind those doors so that you don't feel imposter syndrome when you actually get there yourself. And every, every job I've ever had every success I've ever had is because I was the person who followed the CEO to the to the elevator and like briefed them on the next meeting. And while I was doing that, they got to know me and I got to know them. And I got to actually see that they put on their pants one leg at a time, just like everybody else. And it um it 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 was absolutely definitional to my trajectory to put my ego aside and put myself in an absolute peon, get the coffee for the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee kind of role. But I was, you know, to quote Hamilton in the room where it happened. And the lessons that you get behind the scenes, you couldn't pay for in an MBA program. Absolutely. And the, the link that I'll ensure that I put in the notes is the blog post that you wrote uh, in the back of a cab of <laughs> yes. the, the, le- the learning lessons that you would uh, you'd give to somebody. So um, I think it was 20 or 25 or. Yeah, it was, uh, it was what I wish I knew when I was 22. And I literally like tapped it out on a, on a, on, on my, on my phone in the back of a cab in New York city and then just press sent. And, and it's really funny. I think we spend so much time thinking and overthinking and perfecting everything we're doing. And I'm certainly learning uh, uh, this lesson that when you put out that's, that's polished and not rife with typos, but is still pretty raw and pretty authentic, people really respond to that. People like, there's so much polished nonsense. I mean, this is the other thing I'd say to young people is that, you know, all those like hustle porn Instagram photos of like, you know, people with their, you know, wearing t-shirts, but little wool beanies. I mean, what's up with that, right? Like if you're wearing a t-shirt, it's just too warm to be wearing a wool beanie, but like they're wearing <laughs> t-shirts and wool beanies and they're standing in front of like a G6 and a fancy Ferrari. And oh, by the way, those are rented, right? They're it's they're fake photos and there's all this hustle porn nonsense. So we have this idea that like it has to look a certain way, but it has to look your way. Like it, success will be success if it looks like you and it feels like you. And, um, you know, you and I talked about this before we started recording earlier today. I interviewed Alan Mulally, who is the former CEO of Ford and former CEO of Boeing and widely credited for saving both of those companies. And he told this incredibly compelling story about how when he supervised the per- first person he ever supervised, he micromanaged and micromanaged and micromanaged because he, that's how he saw the people above him doing it. And finally, the, his, his one an employee walked in and he was like, I quit. And he's like, what do you mean you quit? And he goes, I don't want to work for you. You're, you're micromanaging me. It's terrible. And Alan was like, well, what, what can you do? No, don't leave. Um, what can I do to fix it? And he was like, you can be you. He's like, you know, you're smart and you're authentic and you're warm and you're acting like them. And that doesn't work for me. And I wanted to work for you because you're you. So, you know, understanding how to find your own voice is it, it doesn't happen when you're, you know, pretending to be the guy with the t-shirt and the beanie. Absolutely. And, and it's funny, you know, you and I were talking about Alan, but then, you know, something I was thinking about right before we jumped on was, you know, the first team members that I had the pleasure of managing sat down with me. So, you know, I certainly believe in being more of a friend to the people that I manage, right? Like I'm not sit on the throne and kiss the ring type of person. Um, 
But they approached me one day uh, when we we're having a staff meeting. They said, listen, uh, you're being too much of a friend. We need you mm. to step up and make decisions and hold the line for us. And I always thought that I was, right? Like I would go out and I would be the barrier. You know, I'd take the the heat for things and, you know, I'd certainly making decisions, but I was trying to leave more things to them and, you know, put it into their hands and, and, you know, all ships rise and empower them. But they came, they collectively, like three or four people came back to me and said, no, like, we like what you're doing, but we need you to put pressure on us and, and help us to learn. And so that helped develop my management style even more still i treat you know want to treat people friendly and again not sitting on the throne but i also have gotten better at making hard decisions and you know having to have the team buy in on that Um, yeah i think that we make a mistake when we i mean i know at least i made this mistake when the first time i started managing people is that i confused being friendly with being friends mm -hmm. and i tried to be friends and that was hard and uncomfortable and awkward for them because i was their boss (laughs) that was unfair frankly to them and i was just because it's lonely at the top and i thought we were all in this together and it turns out they don't want to be my friend (laughs) they want to be my employees but they don't want to be my friend and and, you know, I remember the first time I friended one of them on Facebook and they were like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Say no, but also eek, right? So we have this thing. And I think what happens is that managers don't actually have conversations with their employees about what they actually care about. And so this whole rubric of consonants of calling, connection, contribution, and control can also be, uh, it also can be overlaid to management because, you know, if, if, two thirds of your staff at any given time is not engaged at work. I mean, I think the statistics are something like 22% of your staff at any given time is engaged in work or or sorry, a a third of your staff at any given time is actually engaged in the work. And we know that engaged employees are 22% more productive for their company. So if you think that, two thirds of your staff is basically not paying attention, which is I'm sure even worse now as people are working from home in times of COVID, they're either, you know, not paying attention or they're stressed or they're burnt out or they're worrying about a lot of things right now. If you don't understand their why, if you don't understand why they're doing the work they're doing for you as a leader, for this product, for this brand, for this company, for this paycheck, whatever the thing is that encourages them the most, then you're actually not having real conversations with them about what they care about. You're having conversations with them about what you care about. You're not having conversations with them about what they care about. And the the beauty about having conversations about, with your staff about whether they're there for calling or whether they're looking for more connection or whether they are just thinking about how this work's going to contribute. Maybe they couldn't care less about the company and they couldn't care less about the work they do as long as they're getting that paycheck. Like and everybody's rubric of consonants will be different. But if you have conversations with them, what, what they actually care about, you'll actually be able to, in a friendly way, understand who they are. Because what happens is, for example, salespeople, you have lots of noisy, flashy salespeople who are like, I sold this much and I sold this much and aren't I amazing? I'm the best thing since sliced bread. And the boss is like, yes, you are. And we really need the revenue. So I'm going to give you a big fat bonus. And then they give the salesperson a big fat bonus because they think that's what the salesperson wants. And then the salesperson walks back in their office sometimes six weeks, eight weeks later with that like 
what have you done for me lately face on? And it turns out that if you just had a real conversation with that person, you might have found out that what they actually care about is they care about giving back. They're there because they actually care about these issues and they're, they're torn because in order to sell a lot, they have to travel all over the place and that means they can't serve their community. But if you just put them on your corporate philanthropic, uh, philanthropic committee, they may be super happy, but you don't know that if you're trying to be friends with them, but not have these friendly, open conversations about what actually brings them consonants. Absolutely. And, and I've had similar conversations, right, with, with other friends and things of that nature who have worked for large companies and had the opportunity or are making a lot of money, but they don't feel connected to their company. And they could be some of the largest brands in the world that a lot of people would give anything to work for. And yes, it's because there's not a connection for that person. And that I think that that connection could be at different levels. They may not be connected to their management team or to the senior leadership or to what the, the values of that company are. You know, one of the things that I see a lot in Silicon Valley um, and I'm sure it happens elsewhere. I just experience it in Silicon Valley is that some companies, you know, every company says that they have the same stuff values, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they care about their employees, diversity, like there's this checklist, right? They have a gym, they have a cafeteria. It's all the same thing. But the companies that I talk to um, when I'm changing jobs or what have you, I, diversity and inclusion is something that really matters to me. And that is like, I dig in on those conversations with those companies because I can point out really quickly how much they care and how baked into the culture it is, or if it's just a checkbox. Yeah. And the fact that they have kombucha on tap in the break room, <laughs> or you can bring your dog to work on Fridays, or you get your dry cleaning delivered for free, doesn't do squat for the righteous indignation that you have about the fact that there's not inclusion and diversity in Silicon Valley. Right. I mean, yeah. that's just, and, and, and if I knew that about you as an employee, it would be so easy to manage you and inspire you because in addition to the work that you're doing for which I'm paying you, I'm going to get a ton of free labor, um, you know, from you in on the diversity and inclusion committee on, you know, our, our, our recruiting committees, all of those things, it's going to be great because you're going to be so inspired by that. And you're going to feel seen, you're going to feel valued. You're going to feel important to not just the work that you're doing, but the cause that you're moving forward. And, you know, that is the way to get employees to really give you all of themselves. I mean, think about it. If, if I brought you in, but I'm like, I only want what you give me from nine to five. The rest of what you have in your life, I don't want anything to do with it. I would lose so much of the value of what Justin brings to the table. But if you allow someone to bring their whole self to work, you get all of them. And why wouldn't you want all of somebody? Absolutely. And I think it goes back to a bit of what you're talking about with, you know, the assistant manager and, you know, choosing the EA position and what have you you don't need to be at the top of the structure, right? You don't need to be the VP, senior director, whatnot. If you have something that's very meaningful, maybe you're both, maybe you are the senior director or VP with this role, you know, with this uh, thing such as head of, you know, diversity, inclusion, or in 
uh, head of this exact this holiday that you're going to put together because you're from a certain culture or whatnot but you might be lower down within the company at say an entry level but because you're so passionate about that culture team or diversity inclusion or whatever it might be you're more aligned with the company even at a entry-level position than you would be if you were at that VP-level role who only came into work to focus on the stuff that rolls under a VP. Oh, yeah. I mean, that 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 first job in the White House uh, that, that I talked about being the person who brought the coffee to the guy who brought the coffee, the guy who brought the coffee, the guy that I used to follow to the elevator and give him the briefing papers uh, was a man by the name of Eli Siegel. And Eli ran the 92 campaign and could have had any job he wanted in the world. He could have been ambassador of France, like easy, great, cushy job. But he wanted to create AmeriCorps because he believed so much in service. And I remember sitting at this big, long mahogany table in the old executive office building and all of his his, you know, older, you know, MBA, PhD, you know, brilliant advisors were around the table talking to him about statistics and research and all of this stuff. And it was super stuffy. And there were like six of us that were like the young and hungry. There was like a room off to the side. We called the romper room because it's where all of our guests were all like <laughs> smashed into this tiny little room. And there were six of us. And I remember they all went through this whole thing, this feasibility study and how do we create AmeriCorps and how do we roll it out and what does it look like and what a service and what are the ad campaigns and all this stuff. And then at one point he just put his hand up and he turned to us and he's like, I want to hear what all of you have to say. And the whole room went dead silent because these adults, quote unquote, were like, what? You want to hear from those kids, those interns? Like, why do you want to hear from those volunteers? Like, we're here with our background and our research and our resumes. And he was like, I want to hear from all of you. And it was the scariest moment of my entire life. But what we share, just our gut reactions to some of these things, changed the way that the program was created, that program that now a million people have served in. And, and, and the... I would be lying if if I were to tell you that I didn't throw up my mouth a little bit before I spoke. <laughs> I mean, it was terrifying. And also he made it clear that there were no wrong answers. He just wanted our feedback. He just wanted our opinion. He didn't want, you know, us to, to, to go, you know, give him this long thesis. He just wanted to know what we thought about the slogan or the color scheme or, you know, the issue areas. And if he hadn't done that, he hadn't turned to us you know, 21-year-old, 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds. And this program that was being created for 18 to 24-year-olds would have flopped because he would have just gotten a bunch of information from a bunch of 40 to 50-year-olds. So if you if you don't include everybody in the room, whatever you're doing is so much poorer, so much more shallow for it. And 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 I do believe that it's it is it is the mark of a good leader to listen more than they talk. And he definitely taught me that. Because I think, you know, one of the things that happens when you're a leader is, is you, you're expected to talk a lot. And the more you talk, the less you listen, the less you learn. And so it is understanding why you're there, understanding what gives you consonants, understanding, you know, why you do the work you do, and then being able to look around the table at each of the people there and understand what inspires them why they do the work they do, what gets them engaged and motivated, helps you to have the kind of conversation where you know how to bring everybody into the conversation in ways that it may be terrifying, but they also feel comfortable being part of it. Uh, you know, I, I, um, 
as you know, was on Good Morning America with Limitless. And how did I get on that? Because I spoke at an event and I was an easy person to work with. And I helped the MC get back on track multiple times. And so he gave my book to Robin Roberts and was like, you need to read this. It's really good. And then she loved it and asked me to come on. But how did I get to that event? Because our mutual friend, Mitch Joel, years earlier invited me to come to something and just like, hey, come hang out at this event that my company is sponsoring and it'll be fun. And here's the, you know, here, here's the flight you should take tomorrow. If you're free, you know, book that flight and come on up. And I did. And I didn't even really know him that well at the time, but he was sponsoring the event. The event had as its uh, keynote speaker, Joe Biden. He's Canadian, but he knows that I'm deeply involved in American politics. And he's like, hey, you want to come hang out with me and Joe Biden? It'll be fun. And I was like, oh, okay. But I didn't have any, like, did I know at the time that I was going to write Limitless, that I was going to go on a media tour, that I was going to speak at this event, that I was going to, you know, Robin Roberts would be on stage with me, that the MC was going to hand the book? No, I didn't know any of that. I just knew that he was an interesting person who did interesting stuff. And I think if you hang out with interesting people who do interesting stuff, interesting things happen eventually. And, uh, you know, it's, you were not replying to his text at one in the morning, like, oh, okay, this is going to get me the promotion for sure. You were just like, he's a good guy. I'm going to help him. And who knows where that leads to. But I think, I think it's, uh, you know, if you go through life with this like scorekeeper mentality, like I'm only going to help the people who I know can help me, then you end up with a pretty empty bucket. I think. And I, 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 you know, there, there have been people that I have been able to reach out to that have helped me with my book, that have helped me with my businesses, that have helped me get on stages. And people are like, how do you know them? And I'm like, cause I knew them 25 years ago when they were nobody. And none of us thought that we would be wherever we got to, you know, that guy I talked about earlier, Eli Siegel, he was best friends with, um, with, with, uh, Arnie Miller and best friends with Sandy, um, Oh my gosh, I, I'm forgetting Sandy's last name, uh, who ended up becoming the national security advisor. And Arnie was the one who ran this giant search firm I went to go work for. And Eli, you know, ended up, you know, in the White House. And, and, and the reason that, uh, the, the reason that I, ended up working for Eli and Arnie was because years earlier, they all met on a campaign for McGovern, who was running for president. And uh, when Eli was running the campaign, he hired Arnie Miller to run the state operations. And Arnie Miller hired this young couple named Bill and Hillary Clinton to run Texas. Like nobody knew where anybody was going at the time, but they were united all with the same idea that they wanted to move a cause forward. And, you know, it's when, when you, when you, when you operate out of a place of like Machiavellian uh, self-interest, you're never going to get as far as if you move towards something where you're working together towards a cause. And so identifying that calling, that thing you care about, and then how you're working connect to it, it, how it contributes to your life often will become clear in the long run. And then like how much control you need. Well, that really just depends on how old you are and what your family situation is and all of those different things. But each one of us at any given moment in time have and need different amounts of these in, in, you know, in, at, at different variables. But if you try to game the system and figure it out, you'll probably get it wrong. I mean, when the book came out, I did like 150 podcasts. And one question I used to always get is, if you could go back and give advice to your younger self, what would you tell her? And, you know, yeah, I wrote this like what I wish I knew when I was 22. But I was like, wait, advice that I give my younger self that's listening to this podcast on a mobile phone? 
uh, that was recorded over the internet. Like none of those things existed when I was 22. So even <laughs> if I did know who I was or what I wanted or where I was going, I would have been wrong. So, you know, it's more important to collect interesting people than to collect name brands and, you know, boldface names right now. And in the way that, you know, you, you got to know the CEO because you served him as opposed to, you know, sucked up to him and was a sycophant, that relationship is a much better and much deeper relationship now. Absolutely. Now, a question that I ask every guest that comes on the show, what does being built unstoppable mean to you? So it's a really great question because I think for me, you know, I wrote a book called Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life. So for me, being built unstoppable means that you have found within yourself the thing that you care about, that you want to do, that matters to you so that everyone else's opinions don't stop your forward momentum. It's not to say that you're always going to be right because none of us know what the hell we're doing. We're all making it up as we go along. And every seven to 10 years or so, you, you know, recalibrate and reassess and retarget. But being unstoppable means that nobody else stops your forward progress, that you keep moving forward, you make mistakes, you know that failure is not finale, but it's fulcrum. And from the failure, you learn and you grow and you iterate and you change and you evolve. And so being built unstoppable means nobody else stops you because of their ridiculous opinions about what you should do or could do or God forbid can't do. And finally, where can people find you on the web? Yeah. So my name is Laura Gassner Otting. It's a lot of names. So all my good friends like you call me LGO. So I am on the web at heylgo.com and all the socials at heylgo on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And um, if people are interested in uh, learning more, they can actually take a Four question quiz, super easy at myfourquestions.com that actually um, will help them understand whether they need to have more calling, more connection, more contribution, or more control in their life. Fantastic. And thank you so much for being on the show, Laura. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Justin. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining another episode of Built Unstoppable. Please head over to builtunstoppable.com where you can read new articles from Justin Levy.